Let's be turning in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis chapter 44, there is a handout of the outline on the back table, and do not be bashful if you missed that to jump up and, and get that. Genesis 44. As you'll see there on your handout, <clears throat> the title of the sermon from Genesis 44 today is Joseph's Plan and Judah's Plea. Joseph's Plan and Judah's Plea. I probably don't have to do much review. Most of you have been here faithfully, uh, even last week. Uh, following this, this account, you remember in chapter 43, Joseph's brothers went to Egypt the second time. This time it's all his brothers, including Benjamin, whom originally their father would not let go down to Egypt. But at Joseph's insistence, says the governor of Egypt, them not knowing it was Joseph yet, Joseph insisted to, that to prove they were not spies, they had to bring their youngest brother with them. And they received a surprising reception. Once they finally were able to, uh, Jacob was finally able to let go of, of Benjamin and let him go. Once they were finally able to come and they, they presented uh, money, they thought they would be accused of stealing. <laughs> they said, we meant to give you this money. And they were told not to worry about it. That was treasure from God in their sacks. Uh, they, had, they had a meal with Joseph at his house uh, around lunchtime, but that would have been the big meal of the day. They were fed food from Joseph's table. Benjamin got five times more than anyone else. A little test there again to see if they would, they would indicate ill feelings toward their favorite and youngest brother. But they did not. The brothers were just astounded at on the second trip now in contrast to their first trip they were astounded at the governor's welcome they didn't know what was going on why the governor would invite them to his house for a feast with him but they enjoyed it and they rejoiced with their brother benjamin that's where we left it last time chapter 4 then uh, 44 rather as we see the story in this text, we begin with to see Joseph's plan. Joseph is still testing his brothers, not having revealed his identity to them. He needs to know what kind of men they are. If they've been changed over the years, the 20 plus years since they sold him into slavery in Egypt. So he needs to test them to see what kind of men they are. And see specifically now if they will treat Benjamin as they once treated him. So we see Joseph's plan unfold now, verses 1 through 17. First of all, we see the favored brother, Benjamin, the favored brother framed, verses 1 through 13. Let's start reading in verse 1. Then Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, <clears throat> as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your service to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. But notice he modifies uh, what they said the punishment would be. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. Very purposeful, that seems. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. 
Joseph tells his steward, man in charge of his household, and remember the steward has been in on Joseph's plan to a degree all along. He had put the money in the men's sacks earlier. Joseph tells his steward, give them back their money again. I still want to be good to them in that way. But take the silver cup of mine, put it in the youngest brother's sack. And the plan is you're going to go after him and accuse them of stealing, one of them of stealing my valuable silver cup. The word here for cup is borrowed from the from an Egyptian word. Um, it's a vessel for libations, which means it was a sacred object used for divination, as, as is mentioned here. Um, and that'll come up again. <clears throat> we'll talk more about that in a minute. But that made it an object of great value. And it was made out of silver. And it's interesting, as you think about Genesis, it's a very similar idea if Benjamin had stolen this to Rachel stealing her father's idols and making off with them. Benjamin's Rachel's son. That's interesting. You wonder if Joseph had something like that in mind from the stories he knew of his family's history. Don't know. So it's a religious object, not just silver and worth a lot money-wise, but um, also it's silver. Joseph's brothers had originally sold him for silver, right? And how fitting now. He traps them using an object made of silver to demonstrate their thievery, as John Currid says. Um, we also have legal rulings from that ancient time period that let us know seating an object like this, not only precious metal, but a sacred religious object like that, used for worship. Uh, at the time... You could, you could get the death penalty for that or be enslaved. Everyone knew this. Um, again, verse 5, uh, Joseph tells his steward to say, um, is it not from this cup that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? Um, they would use a cup like this. Sometimes, some think it might have been more like a what we would think of as a punch bowl sort of thing in size. Uh, a diviner would pour water on oil or oil on water uh, in this bowl or this, this large cup, and the reactions that would result would determine whether an answer was yes or no to something, favorable or not. Kind of like in ancient times, you may have also heard of the priests reading the entrails of some dead animal to get a sign from the gods, you know, that sort of a thing. But as Andrew Steinman uh, puts it, he says, it would appear that Joseph probably did not engage in any occult practices like this. <clears throat> Instead, he was intent on maintaining his character as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's court and explaining how he knew about Jacob's sons, including details such as their birth order and now their theft of the cup. Um, Joseph, he says, however, makes no mention of the silver in each man's sack. There is no thought that the silver was stolen just as no such accusation was made about the silver in the bags from the last trip. So all the focus is on the cup. And it does seem like uh, Joseph is, is concocting this idea that he, he practices divination. That's how he has all the secret information about them. <laughs> it's all part of the test. In verse 9, when the steward confronts the brothers about this, one of you made off with my master's silver cup. How do they react? Well, they're confident. We didn't do that. Why would we do that? We, we're the one, remember us? We're the guys who brought this, the silver back when we thought you'd think we stole it? <laughs> they're so confident, they say, whoever did this, kill him. And, and enslave the rest of us. Because we didn't do it, is the idea. Again, this echoes... Jacob's doings with Laban in chapter 31. Um, when Laban accused Jacob of stealing his idols, Jacob was so confident. We don't have your idols, your stupid idols. And whoever is here that's found with them will die, Jacob had said. 
Same reaction from his sons on this occasion. Um, on that occasion, Rachel had uh, cleverly found a way out of the sticky situation because she had stolen the idols. Rachel found a way not to get caught. Now Rachel's younger son is caught with something he apparently stole. Interesting uh, echoes here. Verse 12, when the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, then verse 13, they tore their clothes. Indicating great grief, sorrow, despair. This was the worst case scenario. They thought they could keep Benjamin safe when they went down to Egypt. They had promised their father that, right? This was the thing their father had feared, that he would lose Benjamin. Now, totally unexpected to them, the worst case scenario is playing out right in front of their eyes. How could we have foreseen this? Likely, Benjamin was not a thief by nature, and so I'm sure they're just, you know, it's, they're probably thinking, he would never have done this, but he did it. Look, it's there. (laughs) They had no idea that Joseph would have planted the cup. (laughs) Worst case scenario. But again, all this is setting it up so that it's a similar scenario for Benjamin as it had been for Joseph. Andrew Steinman says, the brothers tearing their clothes at the discovery of Benjamin's misfortune recalls the tearing of clothes by Reuben and Jacob at Joseph's similar tragedy. At that time, there was a rift in the family, but now there is family solidarity as all the brothers expressed their shock and grief. In addition, they did not abandon Benjamin, but loaded their donkeys again and returned to the city. Notice that. If they had had the attitude toward Benjamin they had had earlier toward Joseph, what might they have done? Oh man, you brought this on yourself. See ya. (laughs) We don't even have to lie about what happened here. He committed a crime. He's gone. If they were treating Benjamin the way they had treated Joseph. But they didn't do that. They were grief-stricken. They were shocked. And they all went back together. So the favored brother has been framed. Now we see brotherly love tested, verses 14 through 17. Because the test is only beginning, this final test set up by Joseph. Verses 14 through 17. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. It mentions, which is it's interesting it takes the trouble to mention that Joseph was still at his house when they came back. It probably indicates normally Joseph would have been gone on business, gone away from his house by that point in the day. But this had to impress the brothers that he, he already knew what was going on. And this was his business for the day. You know, this wasn't really about Benjamin, as I've been saying. It was about the other ten brothers from Canaan. One day long before, innocent Joseph had begged his brothers for mercy. And to no avail. Now those same brothers are at Joseph's mercy, but without a hope of pardon. They're on their faces before him. But the evidence seems to point to guilt. They looked guilty to the Egyptians. And what's more, they were guilty in their consciences before God, not for stealing the cup. But remember all through this story how their past guilt is haunting them. and They think God is doing this to them because of what they really had done in the past. Remember when they had been stuck in prison for three days and then Joseph had said, I'll let all of you but one go home. 
Genesis 42, verse 21-22, Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Joseph had heard that, by the way. That's one of the occasions he had had to leave to weep and then come back. (laughs) But Judah says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. And again, notice it's Judah stepping forward. He'd been the one who made the promise to dad. Now he's the one to interact with the governor. But verse 17, Joseph says, Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. Joseph has to know whether these are the same men as they used to be. Men who had abandoned their father's favorite, their younger half-brother, to Egyptian slavery. And this time, it would be even more tempting for evil men to do that. The last time they got rid of their brother to slavery in Egypt to make a profit. Now they might do the same thing, but to secure their freedom this time. So again, all the brothers had already returned with Benjamin. They hadn't abandoned him so far, but Joseph is pressing the point. He wants to make it as easy as possible for them, if they're evil men, to show their true colors. He makes the choice as stark as possible for them. All that leads us to the second part of the text, verses 18 through 34, Judah's plea. Judah's plea to the governor. The first part of Judah's plea, we see his father's love disclosed. His father's love disclosed. Verses 18 through 29, let's read that. Then Judah went up to him, to the governor, whom he doesn't know is Joseph staring him in the face, and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. (laughs) He's saying this to Joseph. (laughs) That's ironic. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. It's explicit. It's all about Rachel still, right? You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. In other words, he must be torn to pieces because I haven't seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to shield, to death. Pause there. Seems that in verse 28, Joseph is learning for the first time what Jacob thinks happened. For the first time, Joseph hears, Dad thinks I was torn apart by a wild animal. Seems like that's news to Joseph. But Judah is pleading his father's affection for Benjamin. His father is disclosing his father's love and that it'll kill him if we can't bring Benjamin back. It'll kill him. Rather than vouching for Benjamin's character, since circumstances seem to prove Benjamin's guilt, Judah focuses instead on his father's love for Benjamin. He's pleading with the governor to have compassion on a bereaved old man. But that still leaves the question hanging. 
How can satisfaction be made for Benjamin's apparent crime? Is he just asking the governor that justice not be done? That leads us to verses 30 through 34. Judah's life exchanged. Judah's life exchanged. Verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is Judah. This is the one who had suggested to the other brothers to sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt for no good reason, except they hated him. This is Judah. Now he's pleading to be enslaved in place of his favored brother, Benjamin. This is the complete opposite of what he had been like. Of course, it's after, immediately after this, when we get to the next chapter, that Joseph realizes it's time. <laughs> They're ready. I have to reveal my identity to my brothers. But we're not going there yet. Judah had promised his father to be his brother's savior if necessary. But how could he do that now? He's the one who pledged himself to his father as his brother's keeper. Now he makes good on the pledge in the only way he could. He could surrender himself in exchange for his father's chosen and beloved child. Guilty though that child might be. Now, now realize... Even though Judah had pledged Benjamin's safety, he could have objected that this situation wasn't in the fine print, right? Things were different now. For a righteous man, some would even dare to die or be enslaved. But Benjamin, it seemed, had committed a crime, a high-handed crime. And yet Judah demonstrated his love for Benjamin as well as for his father in that while Benjamin stood accused as a criminal, Judah offered himself up to justice in Benjamin's place. Sound familiar? So all this brings us to the big idea of the text. A little wordy, but it's partly why I gave it to you in writing. The big idea... Proving his love for his father and his brother, Judah pleads to take his brother's punishment. Proving his love for his father and his brother, Judah pleads to take his brother's punishment. We're going to apply this text two ways, as you see. First of all, we need to see that God's grace really does change evil people. And second, Judah's plea points to Jesus' intercession. But first things first, God's grace really does change evil people. You must believe that if you are a Christian. To disbelieve that is to disbelieve the gospel at its root. God's grace really does change evil people like you and me. There's another example of an evil man whom God's grace transformed. Another prime example in Scripture. I'm thinking of the Apostle Paul, once Saul of Tarsus, right? Turn to Acts chapter 9 with me, please. Acts chapter 9. First of all, verses 10 through 16, the Lord Jesus knocked Saul of Tarsus to the ground on the road to Damascus as Saul is going to persecute the church of Jesus Christ there as well as in Jerusalem. 
Jesus stops him, appears to him, blinds him. Then, Jesus, after Jesus has Saul go into the city and await instructions, it says that Jesus appears to someone who's already, who was already a Christian before this all happened. Verse 10 of Acts 9. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here... He has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias couldn't believe it. He had to at least mention to the Lord Jesus himself, Okay, I heard your instructions. It just doesn't sound correct. <laughs> this is Saul. He's not going to change. He's here. His mission here is to bind and imprison us. Jesus says, Ananias, he's a believer now. <laughs> and he's going to be one of the most famous believers in all history. He's going to suffer greatly for my namesake. He's going to be my emissary to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the children of Israel. Ananias, I've changed him and I will change him. Now look down at verses 26 and 27. Skipping some years, Saul of Tarsus makes his way. He has to escape from Damascus in the end from the Jews. Now they're persecuting him. He gets to Jerusalem, eventually, Acts 9.26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, whose nickname Barnabas, of course, means son of encouragement, son of consolation, the one who comes alongside to encourage. But Barnabas took him. And brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Again, the church in Jerusalem, I mean, we, we can understand, can't we? Their fellow church members, had been, not just Stephen, going to, to Paul himself later, their fellow church members had been stoned to death because of this one man who had cast his vote against them said they should die. Perhaps people in that congregation had had a wife or a husband or a child who had been beaten with the 39 lashes at Saul's word. They still bore the scars. Now here he is showing up in church claiming to be one of us. They did not believe he was a disciple. It took Barnabas to have more faith in what the Lord had done in Saul. Uh, he had enough faith in what the Lord had done in Saul to overcome fear of who Saul used to be. And he brought Saul to the apostles, said, look, this is the real story. Now turn to 1 Timothy 1, where Saul, now Paul himself, speaks of all this. Again, God's grace really does change evil people. First Timothy 1, starting in verse 8. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul is talking about what the law of God is really for. And in the process, he'll list all sorts of heinous crimes as the worst examples of breaking God's law. And then after all those heinous crimes, he's probably surprisingly to us, he says, and you know what? What I did was even worse than all that. And God changed me. 
Verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And he takes examples here from the Ten Commandments, but takes the worst case scenario of breaking those commandments. It's made for the unholy and profane, violating the first table of the law, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, extreme example of not honoring your father and mother, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, which also had the idea of kidnapping to enslave, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He just listed what most people think of as the very worst of the worst crimes against God's law. Many of them actually just crimes even civilly or in, in view of earthly laws. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his servants, to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. (laughs) I'm right up there with the murderers and the enslavers and the perjurers and all that, he says. Because I persecuted the church of God. But, verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, since I really am the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul has been put on display that God can and will have mercy on the worst. So don't let that excuse you from coming to the Savior. Don't let your guilt get in the way. Are there any categories of sinners in your mind that you think can never change? Actually, I think increasingly in our culture, even though we live in a licentious culture, even in our culture, people have categories that, oh, that's really bad stuff. And they'll never change. They might never change apart from the grace of God. Do you think certain kinds of perverts will never change? That they are beyond God's grace? Maybe abusers and rapists and child molesters. Maybe mass murderers. Serial killers. Or maybe you simply think that about a person that's harmed you personally in some way. Whoever you put in that box, they'll never change even with God's grace. You're wrong. How dare we deny, even in our heart, that God's almighty power and his glorious grace can change someone. Our hearts blaspheme God when we think not even God can change that person. Or maybe it's the person in the mirror that makes you doubt God's grace and power. Just looking at yourself. Either in the past or in the present, you may feel like your sin has overflowed every bank. It's flooded your life with filth and destruction. And you forget that where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. That's what God's grace does. Maybe you believe that God forgives you. He grants me an official pardon for what I've done, but his grace can't really change me in this life. Maybe you think that God simply gives you enough grace to keep your sinful drives locked in the basement or tied up in the closet. I think that's really how a lot of people tend to think about their remaining sin. If I can just keep it subdued, (laughs) even though it's still there, strong as ever, tied up, uh, that's the goal. Just keep it under wraps. 
keep from actually acting on all the sin that's in my heart. You think those sins are still alive and well, just restrained. But you think you can never in this life be transformed in your heart. Thinking of your life as a house, continuing the analogy, that stuff's tied in the basement, locked up in the closet. You think you've added some new occupants to the house of your life because you now have some genuine love for God and man. You have some genuine desire to be holy. But those new occupants of the house will always be stuck with the old occupants, the old fears and loves, the old desires and hates, the old greed and envy, bitterness and rage, idolatry, deception. You think you can just barely hold on to Jesus, but your sinful desires and attitudes and affections will never really change. But that's not what God's word says. God's grace really does change evil people, and that means you. So don't let the reality of remaining sin in this life drive you to despair or just give you a grim determination to simply sit on your sin and wait it out. (laughs) We will always have battles with our sin in this life. That's the kernel of truth that then gets twisted. We will always have battles with our sin in this life. But it's a campaign we can wage successfully. It's a war we can win. We're not just stuck in gridlock. Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. That's a fact. It will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And it's not just that sinful acts What you do outwardly will have no dominion over you. As if sinful inclinations and feelings and attitudes will still really have dominion, though you refuse to act on them. (laughs) No, to be in Christ, to have Christ's spirit, is to be progressively transformed from the inside out, starting with your heart and mind. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, not just your actions, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or there's this glorious picture, 2 Corinthians three seventeen through 18. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, the image of God's glory which we see, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Christian, as you use the means of grace God has given, his grace will make you a different person from the inside out. Even... That even applies to the most stubborn sins that right now you feel like they're not budging. Don't be fooled by the devil's propaganda and his psychological warfare. That's what this often is. If you look God's glory in the face, you will become more and more virtuous and holy. You will reflect God's glory. You will progressively kill the sin in your life and throughout the corpse. God can and will change you at the core of who you are. He did it in Judah. He'll do it in you. God's grace really does change evil people. Think of that for others. Think of that for yourself. Secondly, Judah's plea points to Jesus' intercession. You know, so far in this last section of Genesis... We've grown accustomed to seeing Joseph in a role that points toward the greater Savior, Jesus Christ, right? And that's true, that's there. But now, you might be shocked to see Judah step forward to be the intercessor, the one who accepts the punishment that another apparently deserves. He would never have done that if he were still the old Judah, but God's grace really does change people. So 
Judah pictures for us the person and work of the one man who actually never sinned. The one man who was the only begotten son of God. And you know, it's really striking to me as I see this picture of Judah having made promises to his father. And he won't go back on those promises. You know, before the world began, this is in our confession with references if you want to look at it sometime. Before the world began, God the Father and God the Son made firm covenant promises between them. Sometimes we call this the covenant of redemption. God's Son would take to himself a truly human nature. He would be born and grow up to be the man Christ Jesus, a man from the line of Judah. Jesus would live a perfect life, a life of perfect righteousness, obeying God's law where we disobeyed. Then he'd be the savior of a vast multitude of sinners chosen by God to salvation. Christ's perfect righteousness would be credited to these sinners. And his violent death under the law's condemnation would take away the punishment their sins deserved. By his death on a cross, Jesus would save his people not just from the penalty of their sins, but also from sin itself. He will save his people from their sins. In the end, Jesus would present these redeemed sinners to his father as blameless saints. We'll talk about that again this afternoon. He'd present them to the father as blameless heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. So in the eternal covenant of redemption, the son of God pledged himself as the savior of those on whom the father had set his electing love. And God the Son did that in the love he shared with the Father for these people, chosen to salvation, yet to be created. But the Son of God also did that in love for the Father himself. Of course, God's highest love is the love mutually given and received among the members of the Trinity, right? That's as it should be. And Jesus proved his love for his father, as John emphasizes so much. He proved his love for his father, as well as for the many brethren given to him by the father, by interceding for his brethren and taking their punishment, by stepping in the path of their punishment. In Genesis 49, and I'm, I'm for this text, reading the NASB, Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, Jacob would later have this blessing I'm just quoting part of it. He'd have this blessing for Judah. As for you, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares to stir him up? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Speaking of the Messiah. Then we see in Revelation 5. The only one worthy to unfold God's plan of redemption. As symbolized by a scroll sealed with seven seals. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. John began to weep loudly and one of the elders told him. Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. As it happens, the lamb called the lion of the tribe of Judah comes and takes the scroll from God the father. And when he had taken the scroll, praises erupt. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Scripture, so why do I go through all that? Scripture intentionally points us from Judah to Jesus. And how does Jesus... Fulfill his role as the lion of the tribe of Judah. What is his greatest triumph as this lion? 
It's his suffering as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who redeems the elect for God the Father. Romans 5, more directly, if this doesn't remind us of Judah, I don't know what will. Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Or Hebrews 2, where Jesus is said to have suffered what he did to bring many sons, his brothers, to glory. Hebrews 2.9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And it quotes the Psalms here, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Also. Jesus, the one who said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That same Jesus speaks of those who believe in him and thus don't perish as those that the Father has given him, of whom he will lose none. John 6 and verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, again, he speaks of himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me, he says, I lay it down freely of my own volition. And that's why the Father loves me, that I lay down my life to take it up again. And because he's laid down his life in the place of the sheep, he says, I give them eternal life, John 10, 28, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you hear the words of Judah to his father? Can you hear Jesus' pledge of himself for the salvation of every last one of God's favored elect? Judah had said, Genesis 43, 9, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And even now, believer... Jesus pleads for you before a greater throne than Joseph's. You are guilty of far more than Benjamin was accused of. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God, pleads your case. He shows his wounds, which plead for you. As Charles Wesley puts it, those wounds strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. 
as Hebrews 7.25 puts it. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And remember, he's pleading your cause before a favorable father, the very one who sent him to be your, your savior in the first place. An old hymn says this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. The great and changeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ, my Savior, and my God. Let's pray together. Father, please do change us by your grace. And we thank you that we who know you have already been transformed and continue to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we gaze on your glory and that glory burns through all the evils of our hearts. It makes us new in your image. Lord, we ask that you would transform more sinners, though, who have not yet turned to the Savior. And Lord, we thank you for this wonderful picture, dim though it may be in Old Testament terms, of Jesus' promises to you on our behalf, and of how he followed through on those promises. And no one will snatch us out of his hand. Lord, we thank you for such security in Christ. May we all know that security and believe it for the day-to-day that we'll face this next week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.